Good afternoon. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Tuesday, February the 15th, 2022. And this is an important day because this is the first LSAT Life podcast for 2022. And along with me, as we're along for the ride for 2021 and possibly 2020, are Keith Seiska of Texas and Jake Feldman in New York, who are longtime major visible contributors to the LSAT Study Group Facebook. And uh, so, how are you? Welcome, Keith. Welcome, Jake. Happy New Year. Thanks, John. Hey, John. Doing well. All right. Well, so the basis for this podcast, actually, the starting point uh, comes from a post from another uh, contributor to the group, Brad Barbe, and uh, it was really, uh, I think, right on 100% um, without giving a lot of information. And uh, this is the end of December where his advice is read carefully. It'll solve 90% of your problems. Read carefully. Well, uh, actually, I think that reading carefully probably would solve, in my view, 100% of your problems, but that's the basis for our discussion today. So let's start there. What does read carefully mean to you, Jake? You know, that's, it's interesting because I, I, I've been processing this over the last little while as we've been talking about making this podcast. And it's dangerous to say, read carefully and leave it at that. Um, we're inspired by so many different parts of our life, so many different uh, teachers and parents and whoever else who teaches us how to read things. Um, we're told to accomplish different things with what we read. Reading carefully may not accomplish the goal that you intend it to if uh, if you need something from the thing that you're reading. For instance, uh, you're in law school and it's 1L and you've got a thousand pages to read that week. Are you gonna read carefully? What does it mean to read that thousand pages carefully? What does it mean to read carefully on the LSAT given that you have 35 minutes? Um, it's not only, I mean, I, I think careful is necessary, um, but that's not the only thing you need. You need careful, but you need intention, you need, an objective, you need to understand the, the parts of the reading that you need to retain and the parts that you need to simply move through. So careful means a lot of things. And if you just take it to mean go slowly and try to remember every word, I think in a lot of ways you do more harm than good. Well, that certainly is not going to happen. Uh, that is go slowly and remember every word or even every sentence. It seems to me that part of success on the LSAT is finding a way to navigate to the best answer choice without always fully understanding all the information. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think, it, again, it's important to define our terms, right? What do we mean by understand? What is the depth to which we have to understand something in order to make right use of it? You know, a, a lot of the, the stuff that, that Keith and I talk about with regard to reading um, and how to teach reading um, has to do with examining our own ability to parse the good from the bad, separate the, the curds from the whey, the wheat from the chaff, and get the stuff that we really want and know which stuff is the stuff we don't need. And it's that insight 
that becomes critical to your ability to read well, um, which I think is probably the better adverb here. You want to read well. And part of that is carefulness, but part of that is reading in a smart manner, reading in an insightful manner, and knowing what parts of it are important and what parts aren't. All right, now let's, let's pick up right on your last sentence there, knowing what parts are important and what parts are not. Keith, when you look at an LSAT question, you know, the objective, of course, is to tick off the answer that will get you one step closer to law school. What are the things that, in your view, are always important, that will always factor into getting you one step closer to that goal? Gosh, that's it's hard to generalize because I think that it is very contextual. But I would say the one thing that is almost always at issue is intent. So when you're interpreting things on the LSAT, I, I think there are two contrasting principles. You've got your principle of accurate interpretation, which everyone knows about. And this forces you to be very uh, fine grained in how you define things and how you interpret the language. But you can't be so nitty gritty in your interpretation that you miss the intent of the author or you constrain your interpretation beyond what was intended by the author. So that's what I consider to be an important corrective to the market, which is not just defining the words with greater and greater particularity, but thinking about how the author intended those words to be, you know, how to play together. Okay, so if I were to short form that, would that include sort of context matters hugely? Oh, sure, right. And the more that I read about the philosophies of the LSAT, the more that I think that context is just implicit in most things that we say. Causal statements, for example, I think are carry inherent contextual cues and they are meaningless without them. Okay, now moving back over to, to Jake for a minute. I'm going to make a statement, okay, and, you know, agree, disagree, modify, whatever, right? But we talk about, I mean, let me back up a little bit. If you open an LSAT test and you look at uh, 26 questions in 35 minutes, as it was in my day, is that what it still is? I mean, I'm sure it's the same, you know, basic, uh, too much overwhelming information, right? I mean, if you were to look at that, and I think most people would say, oh, my God. I mean, look at all that quantity. I mean, how am I I supposed to digest that and, you know, even understand all of it? And so it seems to me that your mind must start with the principle of what I would call stripping down to bare essentials. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I I use different terminology with the same spirit. Absolutely. Same spirit, okay. And what I always found helpful as sort of a teaching tool all right, was, all right, so what does that mean? It means, what are you being told and why, right? I mean, if you're always focusing on what are you being told and why, it seems to me you can't be, you can't be led too far astray. Would that make sense? purpose. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I think we, we hit on exactly the same uh, um, objective sort of moving, moving the opposite direction. Rather than what are you being told and why, I start with why are you being told? Why is this even here? What's the purpose of any of this? What are they trying to tell you? And then what have they used in order to justify that, right? Claim first and then, and then premise. Okay. All right. But the same components for sure, right? The for same sure. components yeah, for absolutely. sure. 
So, I mean, would a reasonable question to be running through your mind as you read this stuff is why was this even written to begin with? What are they trying to do with it? A hundred percent. One of the things that we've, we've really been slamming home is this idea of the principle of charity as a means of reading effectively. Because you, if you begin by presuming that the person that wrote the thing that you're reading is not as intelligent as you are and is not as capable a, a thinker as you are, then you are not taking at face value their intent. Instead, you're imbuing all sorts of interpretations of intent on them. You have to start by presuming that the person that wrote it is a fundamentally intelligent and capable person who is trying to communicate an idea to you. And once you have that in mind, and your objective is discover what that idea is and presume that they, they know how to back up that idea with some evidence that would demonstrate it. Um, whether they've demonstrated it in a valid way or not is to be determined, but everything that they've put on the page, you have to presume is there for a reason. And once you've done that and you put everything in its place, it's a whole lot easier to understand what's there and why it's there. All right, so Keith, now, so Jake is saying, he's saying, all right, so, you know, whether it's the why or the what or the what or the why, you know, that matters. But then he's adding a little bit more, which I think could be characterized as, so how are the what and the why even linked? Is that a fair statement, Jake? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, you you're not you're not going to slap stuff down on the page. If our eighth grade history teacher taught us anything, it's that every sentence has to be there in order to serve your thesis, right? So we have to presume that other people had eighth grade history as well, uh, and they were taught the same thing, and that the thing that they wrote on the page is all there in service of a of a single idea. We know what that is, and and we figure out what place the the rest of what what role the rest of it plays. And yes, in service of an idea beyond it just eventually becoming an LSAT question. All right. Keith, talk to me about the, the linkage, the what and the why. What, what is it you're looking for there? What are you reading for? What are you trying to understand? I am, when I'm, like for on LR questions, for example, I'm, I'm usually looking for conceptual overlap. That's something that Jake and I spend a lot of time talking about ideas, whether they overlap perfectly or imperfectly, or whether they're inconsistent with one another, particularly when you have to paraphrase and it isn't in intuitively obvious that they are the same thing or different things or overlapping things. But what Jake reminded me this morning is that the only reason that that level of analysis matters is because he and I are thoroughly familiar with the argumentative forms that lie underneath that. We know how to prove conclusions. We know what series of words it would take to prove different strengths of conclusions. And so then when I go about connecting the ideas, what I'm really trying to do is figure out how the puzzle that I'm putting together differs from the models that I already have in mind. I think it's a very different process for a student that doesn't know those models to begin with. What's the point of making all the connections if it doesn't add up to a point of comparison with a valid argument? So that's how I do the LSAT, but I'm not sure that that's a good model for how everyone does it or for how the market teaches you to do it. I'm not, I'm not sure there, there's any model that works for everybody, but the way sure. you describe that, it sounds to me very much like... Uh, 
sort of a, a recognition of parallel reasoning approach to the analysis. Is that a fair statement? Right. I've got half a dozen or a dozen forms in my head, and I'm just trying to figure out how to paraphrase the stimulus so that it matches one of those forms in the, the closest fashion possible. Okay. You know, in, in, a, in a certain way, this is very similar. I had a student yesterday I was working on um, uh, entry-level physics with, Physics 101, and, you know, she's learning about constant acceleration, and she's got this list of five or six formulas, and she said, how do I solve, you know, I've got this, this bank of problems that I'm supposed to solve, and I said, this is really straightforward, because you know what they're asking, and you know, they, and you know what, they, what you have, what they gave you. So as long as you know what they gave you and you know what they're asking for, find the formula that has those two things and put them together, right? And it's the same thing with argumentation. If I know what the various algorithms are for argumentation, for valid argumentation, I'll look at what they gave me and I'll look at what I'm looking for. And one of these forms of argumentation will work, whether it's a purely conditional idea or a causal idea or a cost-benefit analysis or any other sort of form of argument. I know what it takes to, to demonstrate whether, you know, the, the prescription that they gave me, you should or shouldn't do something, or, you know, the, the sort of the predictive nature of something. Well, I know what the threshold is there, right? But the, 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 the hard part for the student is that they don't have enough experience with it, nor have they sort of codified what, what they've experienced into something repeatable so that they can apply those forms to the new information on a new question or a new passage or whatever. One of the things that prevented me from identifying the forms was the one-off explanation. The idea that you could explain every question in terms of its own content prevented me for about a decade from understanding that there were really just a small number of forms that were animating all of them. It's amazing to me how the content can disguise the, the logic. It, it's so clever. It's become an obsession of mine to, to unpick that dynamic. Well, I mean, wouldn't each of you agree that the, the, I would say the fundamental principle of LSAT stimulus design, by that I mean the argument of the logical reasoning or the passage and the reading comprehension, is to obscure what they're, obscure the message as much as they reasonably can? Often, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to a certain degree, but I don't think they're obscuring, I don't think they're obscuring the skill. I think the skill is laid bare. And in fact, we've come across a number of questions among the last, you know, 10 or 15 released exams in which they tip their hand pretty heavily about the ways that they are constructing arguments or, or backwards engineering arguments and the ways that they view things to be assumptions and flaws. Um, I think they are uh, doing their best to make the language difficult to 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 sort of dress it up. Um, but if you, you know, like Keith was saying, if you know what to look at and what not to look at, if you know how to read for structure, if in your words, John, you, you know the what and the why, and that's your objective in reading, is to suss out the what and the why and sort of, you know, give yourself a, a skeletal version of the, the, the stimulus to, to make that obvious to yourself, then it, the forms are not obfuscated. The forms are not distorted. The forms are all there and they're all the same. But, but yet uh, it takes time, mental focus, certain amount of understanding 
to figure that out. Why don't we explore some of the ways that they make it harder to figure this out? And let me throw one out here and perhaps you could comment on it. But I always found that the order of delivery of information uh, yes. is it either harder or easier to determine what's really going on. Feel free to comment on that. Absolutely. The order of information is really challenging from, from the most basic, right, where we're taught that the conclusion comes at the end of the stimulus, and sometimes they put it in the middle, and sometimes they put it at the beginning. Yeah, but, right on. I, I think that's absolutely right. Keith, you would agree with that or add to it? or? Yeah, in fact, I think on the parallel reasoning questions, the right answer is almost universally ordered differently from the, the original argument. I would agree with you a thousand percent on that. Absolutely. I mean, that that is one of their basic principles of disguise, I think, uh, in the parallel reasoning. So, I mean, you know, to put this real simple, okay, it would be a mistake to presume that this information is laid out sort of premise, premise, conclusion with a conclusion at the end. Agreed? Agreed. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes sometimes it is, but... It may be, it may be, and it may not be. Yeah, absolutely. But but the point is that you've got to be able to read effectively enough so that you're able to determine what the conclusion is. That is what the what is, you know, so to speak. Now, let me throw out, so we have order. Let me throw out, you know, a second uh, memory trace from my years of doing this stuff. You know, I always found that One of the things that they would do effectively, I mean, even if you have the conclusion, the what, say at the end, is they can easily put that in a sentence with a bunch of clutter around it, right? You know, to make even that unclear, where you can have, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of information, the conclusion might appear, for example, uh, you know, in the middle or or anywhere. Do, do Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I also find that some of the arguments that I've had the most difficult diagramming with Jake are ones that rely on very subtle paraphrasing, uh, idiomatic paraphrasing that only a native English speaker would really appreciate. Things that have to do with tense and, uh, and mood, uh, like subjunctive tone is one thing that Jake and I talk about a lot. If it's I essentially were, dead in conversation. Were, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah things, right. th- things that have to do with subjunctive, hypothetical, uh, predictive, prescriptive, right? Like things that will happen, things that may happen, things that will probably happen. That, that makes it very difficult to sort of navigate the, the, the idea of what is fact or stipulation and what is claim. It's really, that makes it very challenging. You know, I think that's right, but that, you know, triggers uh, another thought, and that is, you know, so let's say, you know, we have the what and the why, and, you know, the what is, you know, the conclusion sort of idea, but it seems to me there's often a real issue on what the scope of the conclusion is even, right? I mean, how far does it go? And, and you know, that requires, um, I don't know if I'd go so far, certainly not reading obsessively, but certainly reading with awareness that, you know, you've got to be clear on how far this is going to go. And I always found it, you know, being an extremely simpleton that I am, extreme simpleton, 
is that often a way of viewing this stuff was are they asking what's always true, never true, or sometimes true? Always follows, never follows, sometimes follows. Yeah, I would add usually to the mix. I've, that, that's you know another distinction that they make, but uh, that's essentially how I use I view conclusions as either some, most, or all. And yeah. even when they don't use those words, I, I graph it onto that form because that's how the predicate logic of, you know, proofs are built. Some A's are B's, most A's are B's, or all A's are B's. And so when they start using language like sometimes or probably or usually, I just mentally paraphrase it. And I say, okay, well, sometimes that A is true. That becomes some A's or B's for me and usually becomes most A's or B's for me. And then I can use the Aristotelian form to inform my understanding of how the premises have to work to support that. Yeah, what, what can get really challenging is that so many of the resources out there want you to put everything in Aristotelian form and everything is if A then B. And the problem is that that only applies to some of the arguments. A lot of the arguments are probabilistic. Right? If A is true, B is probably true. That's different from most A's or B's or most B's or A's. It's, that's not a, it's not really what they mean by if A then B. I, I would not call that really a conditional statement. It's what it is, it's language that suggests a conditional, but it's not really a conditional, which is why I think in an overly formalistic approach to LSAT, I actually, you know, I mean, <laughs> Over the years that I was teaching this stuff, I mean, I, you know, I learned so much and I taught it, you know, in so many different ways. And, you know, there was a period where, you know, I think I was ex experimenting perhaps unduly with, you know, the more formalistic approach to the language, but boy, I backed off on that pretty quickly because there's, there's absolutely no substitute for understanding what you're being told. And if you want to use a formula to help you understand what's being told, what you're being told, I think that's okay. But if you're going to use a formula to decree what you're being told, uh, you know, that becomes a real problem. So, uh, uh, yeah, like I, I use it, I'm sure I've said this before on the podcast, and I'm sure I'll say it a hundred more times, but this is like the distance between any two points. People learn a formula that's based on Pythagorean theorem and then they just memorize it and they just use it. When all I have to tell people is, dude, just draw the triangle, right? And if you understand the concept underneath it, you don't need to memorize the formula. If you understand the, the argument being made, you don't need those purely formal approaches. You don't need the, these symbolic languages because you already understand the idea behind it. And, the, and, and then those things only serve to give vocabulary to concepts you already know intuitively. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's absolutely absolutely correct. That you know maybe that I think you know when you look at these things like language, you look at things like conditional statements. I mean, there is no doubt that these are important issues, concepts for the LSAT. But I think the real issue is, do they become servants or masters? Right and Conditional statement analysis, God knows, you know, we've talked about this and certainly I've talked about it a lot because I do think it's an important uh, background issue, okay, uh, on the LSAT. But the harder question is, and I think we had some back and forth on this on some 
some uh, post recently on Facebook, I think the harder question is uh, to learn when it's appropriate to use it and when not. Because I mean, you know, the LSAT is not, you know, here are 120 questions and, you know, which formula do you think sort of most applies to this stuff? And, th and that's that bit that Keith and I were talking about, about the difference between skill and mastery, right? That ultimately the mastery comes in knowing the, the appropriate times and being flexible and being nuanced. Um, and that's very, very difficult to teach. And you have to layer that on top of building the skill sets. So first we have to build the skill sets. You have to know what it is to be a conditional statement. You have to know what's implied and what is not. You have to know what the forms are of argumentation. You have to know the difference between certainty and probability, the difference between um, you know, past and future tenses and be between um, uh, you know, uh, concrete and, and hypothetical. And once you have all those things down, the grammar of these arguments down, then you can start thinking about, okay, what are the, what are the thresholds? What are the needs? What, what sort of data or premise, premise structure do I need to get me to the kind of claim that, that this person's trying to get to? And this is why being charitable is important, right? This person's trying to make an argument. How well did they do it? How can I evaluate that? I evaluate that based on what they told me. So I just have to collect it all and see if it meets the threshold. Yeah, so to put it another way, would it make sense to view the acquisition of these rules, these skills as tools that are helpful to the extent that they help you understand what you're being told? Yeah. I think that's important because I used to see this as, in fact, I, I may have written something on this at some point, the toolbox approach to LSAT, right? Where you say, all right, so imagine that, you know, we're going to learn to use 10 different tools, all right? And you're learning the tools not to use the tools, but so that you can use the tools if it's helpful to you in getting yourself to the final goal, right? W would that be a reasonable way to look at this? Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, we don't want to be the carpenter who only has the hammer and then they try to hammer everything. Um, you know, we want to have a comprehensive toolkit and we want to be able to use any one of them at any time. And, and then, then our skill shifts from learning to use the tools to knowing which tool to use at, at, at which point and seeing all problems as sort of holistic ones rather than as sort of a breakdown of skills. This, by the way, you know, not to get on a whole different soapbox, but this is why um, prep, uh, prep resources that focus on drilling can often do a lot of harm because what those drills end up doing is having you use your hammer over and over and over again for 10 questions. Then they shift to using the screwdriver and you do that for 10 questions over and over and over again. Yeah, and yeah. Don't learn the meta skill. I think, I think that that's right. And, you know, I think it's actually, it makes such an important point that I want to put it in slightly different language, okay? Um, the, the drilling is not an end in itself in terms of answering LSAT questions. The drilling is the acquisition, you know, elevating the use of the tool to the point where you understand it and can use the tool so that you're able to reach for it if necessary to help you understand what's going on. I mean, let me give you an example of my own sort of history of this stuff, uh, you know, with how to use conditional statements. Um, you know, we see this constant discussion of, uh, you know, contrapositives and blah, 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 you know, all this sort of stuff. But 
I always found that one of the best uses of conditional statements was to actually help understand what an argument is saying in some cases, right? You know, you look at all this language and that's not making an inference from it. That's just recognizing that, you know, it's a way of expressing an idea and, you know, maybe it's helpful in understanding it in this way. But I really agree with the theme that I think we're developing here is that there's fundamentally and yes, this is an oversimplification, but fundamentally two levels of LSAT prep, right? The first is, all right, these are skills that are going to help you in understanding the what and the why and the reading carefully. Let's develop them. But then there's a whole different uh, sort of step in this, right? Where it's how do we transition from being able to use the hammer, the screwdriver, the saw, what have you, to being relevant to help you answer an LSAT question, right? And I think that this is a gigantic part of the problem because sometimes I see these, you know, these posts, uh, you know, people will say things like, and by the way, I'm not being at all critical. I mean, I get the confusion and the anxiety and the agony, but I think that people would be better off if they're, if they're gonna worry anyway, you might as well worry about the right stuff. And you know, the issue is not so much what's the contrapositive, because you're not being tested on that specifically, right? You know, the issue is how and why does that concept matter in understanding what you're being told here? And that, I think, is much more uh, what the LSAT is actually about, you know, than these, than these sort of fundamental things. That's why we designed Triple Review, honestly, because you can get so lost in the forest and we want our students to always come back to that time test and, you know, always be reflecting on, does this help? Does this help me when it matters? And if not, back to the drawing board. Can I make that better? Can I ditch it? Can I look for something else? But everything has to come back to on the time test. Is this going to matter? Mm -hmm. yeah, At some right. point, the other paradox that Jake and I often talk about is that the, um, the strategies that work very well in a timed test environment are the worst strategies for growing your skill set. And the things that you do to get stronger at the skills are complete disasters during the time test. And there aren't very many products or, or, or strategies out there that are telling you this is for prepping and this is for testing. That's, you know, if they could just separate the two, every product out there would be, a, a, you know, a level better than it is now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you on that. Let's, let's extend this slightly. You know, we've been talking about the stimulus. Um, now, let me preface this by saying that in my view, all the, the whole LSAT is reading and reasoning in context. That's what you're being tested on. But I think that the reading and reasoning of the, of the question itself and the answer choices is every bit as much a part of that test as sort of reading the argument stimulus. And I wonder if I can direct our attention here to reading the question itself, which seems to me now, I wanna, I'm gonna tell you a story about my father years and, you know, years and years ago when I started teaching this kind of stuff, my father was a very bright man uh, you know, I think he probably would have done very well on the LSAT. But, uh, you know, he, I gave him a bunch of questions. I just want to see, you know, how he would do on them. And he was sat there at the kitchen table and, you know, he would do this. And 
after a minute, you know, he'd check off this and he'd move on to the next one and check off that. And, you know, he kept doing this for a while. And then he kind of looked up to me with, you know, total disgust and, uh, you know, sort of handed me the sheet of paper. And, you know, I think he, he either got them all right or got one wrong. And then, uh, you know, he's getting up. And he clearly didn't want to discuss any of it. You know, um, he was getting up to leave. And I just said, I mean, you know, you did great. Do you, do you have any comments on this at all? And he said to me, yeah, yeah. You know, what's hard about this is not the questions. What's hard is being clear on what you're being asked to do with them. And, you know, that was, uh, I thought, an incredibly insightful comment. And I don't think that LSAT, you know, students, whatever, LSAT, people are preparing for the LSAT, pay enough attention to that. They don't pay attention to what they're being asked. Agree, disagree? You know, it's such a subtle question what they're being asked. I found that my understanding of what is a flaw, what is an assumption, what does it mean to strengthen and weaken the argument, those things have changed over the last 15 years that I've taught the LSAT. They continue to change every time I sit down and model arguments with Jake. So this is a really difficult question to think about and answer, I think. You know, also, I think there's a there's a difference between the what sort of reading is necessary in the stimulus, because the stimulus is full of I don't want to say casual English, but sort of natural language that we're used to reading all the time. Whereas the question stems, right? Mm. The ones that ask you what to do Technical. have jargon. They have specific LSAT jargon that has specific meaning to LSAC. And you have to understand examples. So the word conclusion, first of all, the word conclusion means something different for the LSAC than it means in science circles. Argument means Argument. something different. Claim means something different, right? Assumption. Principle, principle, assumption, paradox. These are all words that are, well, they don't really use the word paradox that much anymore, but, but it's certainly there. Uh, they have a lot of synonyms for it now too. Parallel, right? Parallel has a very specific meaning for them, right? Like we were saying, right? Parallel does not mean that every premise is in the same order, right? Yeah, Which is, yeah. right. So well, they say parallel the reasoning. Right, the reasoning. Seems to be the important language is the reasoning there. Right? right, there's your technical word. What does that mean? What does the reasoning entail? They never tell you. That's yeah. my biggest gripe with them is that it's not clear what body of scholarship they're testing. They don't come out and tell you this is the philosophy of logic. This is whatever. Go study that. Right. They are really imprecise about explaining where the the rationale for these questions comes from yeah if they told us look we're adhering to aristotle Locke, and descartes and those are our models and that's it fine we go out and learn it right but the whole deal the here, LSAT historians the LSAT scholars of the day exactly um but but what we're left with here is what i think is one of the upsides of the lsat is that this is not a test that asks you to go out and read source material memorize it and spit it back instead it's testing your ability with language which i think is very good but in your question here i think in this way the prep resources out in the world are very helpful i think it's important to know what these things mean and what how they translate to natural language argumentation. I think where the prep resources fall short is that all they tell you is these are what these things mean. 
they don't relate them back to the idea of valid argumentation. So right. that's on us to bridge that gap. But at least they tell you, look, these are all the different categories of questions. And anything you see that is not one of these is a synonym for one of these. That's it. Okay. So, you know, we're looking, so we look at the question and before we talk about the structure of answer choices, uh, again, you keep triggering all these memory traces. And, you know, I used to have this jargon for, you know, uh, for categories of wrong answers, right? And I remember one of them that I used to always say, well, absolutely true, but not responsive to the question. Uh, yeah. Right or, answer, wrong question. Uh, or yeah, uh, yeah, the answer to the, yeah, the answer to a different question. And, and often, by the way, it's the answer to another question that's commonly asked on the LSAT, right? I mean, that's what's interesting about it. So it kind of, you know, I'm kind of suck you into it that way. Um, you know, I think another, I mean, this one's incredibly obvious, but sometimes the obvious is worth repeating more often because it's so obvious is, you know, what I would call the sort of, you know, the out of scope type of thing, you know, it goes too far, doesn't go far enough. And I think you have to be clear and, you know, are you, you know, what is the strength of the inference you're being asked about, you know, et cetera. So that's really important. Um, but then, you know, the, uh, I mean, the number of these things that, of these wrong answers that are predictable and repeatable types, I, I find absolutely astounding, right? You know, or in parallel reasoning where they, you know, a wrong answer choice that has, uh, you know, that would be parallel in terms of form, but not parallel in terms of the actual reasoning you know, which again can suck people in. So, I mean, all of these things seem to be examples of what I would call the fundamental principle of LSAT answer choice design is to attract you to answer choices that are wrong and keep you away from answer choices that are right. And it seems to me they also do this through, well, here's another one I used to always talk about, a compound thought wrong answer choice where, you know, it starts out like just fantastic. Yes, this is it. This is it. This is what I've been prepping for all my life. And the most dangerous word in the LSAT answer choice is the word and, A-N-D. And by the time you've hit the word and, you're just so sure that it's the right answer. No, please, I don't want to look at that. I don't want anything to upset my you know, my flow. So there's, you know, these compound thought answer choices, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, what, what, are, what are, you know, your sorts of perceptions of this? I mean, you think I'm on the right track, I think, right? Yeah, Keith, I mean, you just posted something about this, about sort of the, the, the three basic types of wrong answers, right? Oh, right, for LR, semantic problems, logical problems, or sort of combined problems. What, what I find interesting is that when I explain LR questions, there's usually an easy semantic explanation that a lot of the tutors and explanations online bite on. If they had just used these words or they didn't use these words and they should have. But then if you dig deeper, what I found is that sometimes even if you fixed those words, the answer would still be wrong. It has a deeper logical problem with it. And that gets totally dismissed when all you focus on is, well, they didn't use the magic words. And then when you get to a parallel reasoning question where 
the content is completely irrelevant, you don't have the semantic backdoor to get the question right. At that point, you have to understand the logic. And when people come to me with LR problems, what do they usually say? I don't understand the uh, parallel reasoning questions. I don't understand parallel flaw questions because they don't understand argumentation. They understand how to eliminate answers using verbal tricks. Do you spend a lot of time with parallel reasoning? The reason I ask is that I, I found that was an area that was incredibly susceptible of improvement. I, I don't spend as much time on it as I used to because I have been teaching you know, all the other kinds of argumentation questions in a different way from the way I was teaching it 10 years ago. Yeah. 10 years ago, I was teaching it semantically. I was teaching it via content and, you know, sort of the same post facto affirmative explanation kind of stuff that we're talking about. As I've developed my sort of approach to this and I teach uh, LR from a structural standpoint, I find that it's a lot easier to communicate about parallel reasoning and parallel flaw than it used to be. It's a lot easier to communicate about method, method of reasoning questions than it used to be, because that's already how I'm talking about all the other questions. So I do spend a lot of time on it with new students, students that are new to me, but not new to the LSAT, who have learned from other resources and are struggling. But as soon as we sort of flip the script on some of those other kinds of questions, I think parallel reasoning becomes an easier task. I don't spend a lot of time on it because we, we do this wrong answer game that I posted about the other day. And when you play the wrong answer game, every question becomes a parallel reasoning question because you're forced to fix the wrong answers in terms of their semantic content and their logic. And once you start fixing the logic of the answer choices, you're essentially engaging in a, an analysis of the, the reasoning, the logic, not just the semantics. So I find that wrong answer game to be extraordinarily powerful. And the students who have committed to that have made a lot of progress on LR. Well, that's interesting. You know, I, I saw that post up, but I didn't really uh, I didn't spend that much time looking at it. But, you know, I, I noted in passing that, you know, that definitely sounds interesting. A couple other things that I'd like to get your thoughts on. One of them is this. When we go to the, the question itself, right, uh, you know, which of the following most strongly or most weakened or something like that. Um, one thing that I think students don't do that they should is ask, what does the question imply about the relationship between the right and wrong answers? Or uh, even about the stimulus itself. Sorry? Or even about the stimulus itself, like the fact that you know going into two thirds of the questions that you're about to read a flawed argument. Because the stimulus is telling you to fix it or to identify its flaw or identify its assumptions. So um, the relationships are often hinted at by the question itself, not just the right answer, but even the content of the stimulus is often, you know, directly uh, addressed. Which, you know, which one of these strengthens the argument above? And now, you know, you're about to read an argument. That's true, too. In order to put it another way, I mean, what does the question itself tell you about what it is you're about to read? I don't know that that's an argument for reading the question first. I, you know, I am actually, this is just my personal view and therefore is not advice, but I, I don't really think it's, I've not found it to be helpful generally to read questions before, uh, you know, reading these arguments. But I, you know, I think that people can differ on that. 
And I think a lot of it just has to do with their overall reading ability, which is by far, by far where there's the biggest disparity uh, on the test. It's, you know, it's the overall reading ability. Final thing um, I'd love to get your thoughts on is this, you know, when we look at these answer choices, I think that, I mean, there's obviously a lot of thought, a lot of thought that goes into drafting those answer choices, because there's no doubt that it is a separate independent test of reading. But I wonder how much thought goes into the ordering of the answer choices. You know, why do we put this D as opposed to B or E, for example? Any thoughts on that? Do you think that's part of the design of the test, right? Well, I, I, I'll tell I'll tell you this. I've been on the on the item construction side of things, not with LSAC, not with a standardized testing company, but with with a with a uh, a company that does standardized testing for for school kids in math. And we talked a lot about this. Where we ended up was that we were more likely to do psychometric harm to the question, meaning that we were going to be implying things that were true or not true about the answers than to do any good by having our hand on the order of the answers. The only time that we ever ordered the answers was when the, or when the answers themselves were numbers and we put them in numerical order, smallest to biggest or front to back. Okay. Other, than, other than that, we, we actually found we were doing more data harm than good. So I don't know what LSAC does, but I have a hard time believing that they don't randomize. I really see, do have a hard time believing. See, I think that if they randomize it before they test it, they, the, the validity of the question is locked into the order of the answer choices as tested. Because if you change them, you might get a different pattern. And sure, that's arbitrary, but that's the point. You don't want arbitrariness. And so um, the fact that you may get discrepant data with a different order of answer choices, I think militates in terms of, of copying the question identically as it appeared when you tested it. Now, whether, they, whether it's random before they test it, I don't know. But I think once they test the question, I think they're locked into that order of answers. You know, I, I don't know. I will say we we actually had a system that randomized the answer choices unless you told it not to. Uh -huh. um, yeah, but so, that's different. I mean, these are verbal. Right. No, you know, we, your, your, your we interpretation of one will then affect your interpretation of the next. Yeah, you know, that's probably true. But the, the noise that is created by all sorts of other psychometric, like, you know, defaults toward, you know, the, all these people that are saying, oh, you should always answer D if you can't uh -huh. figure it out, randomly answer D. We have to get rid of that noise, right? So from a, from a psychometry standpoint, right, if you're a test designer, you should be randomizing your answers. That is the good thing to do from a data standpoint. Whether they do it, I don't know. Um, but they should do it. Interesting, interesting. Well, you know, this has been a great, great discussion today. Um, you know, as you know, I, you know, I tend to see the LSAT as reading and reasoning. That's what it's about. And, you know, I think to the extent that people, and we've talked about this before, see the whole LSAT as, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six different principles, you know, rather than all these different question types and subcategories, I think they're better off. And yeah, I presume you both would agree with that. For sure. Yeah, we're lumpers, not splitters. So I'd like to make a proposal for our next podcast. I'm not sure when we'll do this, but we should do it fairly soon. 
you know, there's this book by Stephen Covey called something like the uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Was that the title of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we should do a podcast. We'll call the Seven Habits of Highly Effective LSAT Test Takers. What do you think? Cool. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Where we really have to, you know, get away from all these different categories of things and say, here's seven things, everybody. Okay, that if you do, will always keep you pointed in the direction of the right answer. Does that sound good? Sure. All right, so let's make that the next one. But in closing here, um, by all means, please introduce yourselves again and give your coordinates. Absolutely. I'm Jake Feldman. You can find me at nexusacademics.com and on the LSAT uh, study group Facebook group. Uh, as well as triplereview.online, which is uh, the uh, class product that uh, Keith and I have been working on together for the last year and a half. Yeah, and I'm Keith Siska. Uh, my page is Last Call Bar Academy. And um, I also host the triplereview.online with Jake. So that's a good way to get information on our combined services. All right, and I'm John Richardson, and I'm no longer doing an LSAT tutoring or teaching, so I suggest that you reach out to Keith and Jake for that. All right, this has been great. Thanks very much, and looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Have a good one.